are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening. Welcome to episode two of season six of Where Your Treasure Is. And we are continuing to look at money and wealth and possessions according to the Bible. So Simon, great to have you here again. What are we going to be looking at in this episode? Thank you, Bex. Episode two, we have already had money according to the Old Testament law, and now we're moving on to money according to Old Testament history. So to put you in context, we're going to be going through, not in detail, we'll be dipping in and out of the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, but no further than Esther, because after that, we go into some poetry. Okay, so it feels like we've got quite a broad range of books there, of different writing styles. Esther and Ruth feel quite different to all the others. And to be honest, some of them, particularly I'm thinking Chronicles, Kings, Judges, are really easy to skip over when you're reading your Bible plans. It feels like you're getting a lot of chronologies, a lot of detail, and so it'll be interesting to see how we can apply that to today. It is interesting how the depth and breadth and scope of some of these books varies. So you've got the story of David, which seems to start in 1 Samuel and works its way all through 1 and 2 Samuel, right to the end of 1 Kings and sneaks into 2 Kings before we get a few more kings going on. David just gets vast quantities of stuff about him. And then once you get into, yes, the books of Judges and Chronicles, some folk just get a mention and then there was so-and-so and then there was so-and-so. So clearly the Bible does focus our attention in on certain lives and certain situations and like you say, the, the wonderful stories of Ruth and of Esther, which kind of break us out of this mold of historical traditional writing into a narrative from which we can glean so much value. I'm looking forward to getting into those. And when you spoke about those people who we hear in passing, it so often feels on something like Kings that you often get, then there was King so-and-so, and they did evil in the Lord's sight. And so hopefully we can glean some things as to not do that as well today. So I'm thinking, like we started last week, what are the big themes we anticipate seeing through these historical books of the Old Testament? Bex, what ideas around money, wealth, and possessions come to mind for you? And then we might dig into a couple of them. So thinking back to the last episode, first of all, I'm thinking we started talking about the promised land. Joshua is obviously key in that, and that continues that journey. I'm also thinking about the temple that we started talking about in Exodus and how David and Solomon go on to complete that. So what does that look like in terms of money and wealth? And then in Ruth, I'm thinking back to what you said about leaving things to the side and how Boaz does that in action. And so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. So I thought we'd maybe follow on from where we ended up last episode. We were talking about some of the characteristics of how we give, even under the law. And one of the things that hadn't come up yet was give cheerfully. And it's something that is often said, God loves a cheerful giver. And we're going to find out a bit about cheerful giving along that theme of building the temple. 
So it feels like we've moved away from the promised land. We get to the book of Joshua. We know that by the time we get to Joshua, they are there. They're doing it. They are fighting. They're taking territory. They're claiming the promised land. But we get this huge, long narrative around the life of David. And whilst it's not a topic about money, wealth, and possessions, the people wanted a king. They wanted to be like those nations around them. They get a king, and David's a a king that fights for them and helps them conquer the promised land. But a point comes in David's life where he settles down, builds himself a palace, or at least has other people build a palace for him. And there's a man who has an awful lot of money. I have seen certain accounts that try and compare, in today's terms, just how much stuff David ended up with. And it was a lot of stuff. And yet, he was a man after God's own heart. So we do have a sense of it is possible at least in the Old Testament, to be very, very wealthy and still be God's anointed, despite the fact he didn't get everything right. But I want to focus on the moment right at the end of David's life when he is planning to build the temple. He's actually been told by God at this stage, no, you're not going to be the man that's going to do it. Solomon's going to do it. But David has prepared. He has drawn up the plans. He's got everything ready. And then he starts to give. And first of all, David goes to the treasuries, all the treasures they have captured from people. And I'm going to give all of this money to preparing the temple. And then he says, and besides, this is in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 3, besides, in my devotion to the temple of God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver. Above everything else I provided. And then after he's given, the leaders and their families and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, they all give willingly. And there's thousands and thousands of talents of gold and silver. I'm not entirely sure how much a talent is, but it sounds like there was a lot of money going on. The people rejoiced at the willingness, the generous, cheerful giving. Here we have a moment when people gave, not just the first fruits under the law, not just the gleanings to the widows and the orphans. They gave out of God's abundance and they gave cheerfully. And I just love that. And that's definitely a theme we'll see continued throughout the New Testament as well. That concept of it's not even so much always about what we give or how much we give, but actually what's going on in our hearts when we give it. And speaking a little bit about attitudes, I was thinking about how in a lot of the history books, you have this sense of being obedient to God. And if you are obedient to God, God will bless you abundantly. And so I'm looking at things like Joshua 1.8, keep this book of law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And again, we see that in 1 Chronicles 22 verse 13, starting verse 12, And again, we see it in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 12. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. And so there's this sense of, again, things coming from God. So both our understanding and our ability to enact that but also that sense of the Lord's given us the law. And if we fulfill that, 
then we will be successful and we will prosper. And I'm thinking that actually there are a number of Christians today who would adopt that theology of if I do what God tells me to, I will be healthy, I'll be wealthy and life will be pretty good. Simon, do you think that's what we can draw from these verses or do you think there's different things in that? I think if you were being technically accurate, absolutely. If you obey every command that God has ever given you, Bex, and we're going Old Testament and New Testament, then yes, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. There's a problem, though, that there is nobody apart from Jesus himself who has ever managed to keep the law. The law was there to create some kind of benchmark an expectation. If you do this, says God, then I will do that. And it's what they wanted. They wanted God's blessing. They just never managed to meet the standard he set for them. And God knew full well that they were never going to do that. So why did he do it? And part of me thinks, well, he did it to prove a point. You can't do it by yourself. He did it to point them to a different solution so that by the time that Jesus came, even though most of them missed it in the moment. He was God saying, the law isn't the way because you can't meet the law, but I'm going to give you a second chance almost. But something comes to mind when we talk about this idea of obedience. If we can only ever fail to be obedient, we can't manage to keep the law in its entirety, then what's the good of it? And there's a little verse that gets dropped in in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we are in the story of Saul. Saul is the first king and he is leading the army of Israel and he's fighting the Amalekites and all the other ites that are out there. And a point comes where he gets a bit too zealous. He wins a battle, sets up a monument in his own honor. And then along comes Samuel. And Samuel says this, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Well, We think he does. We think that he he likes us sacrificing things. That's why we're doing it, God. We like burnt offerings. That's what you want. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience here isn't just restricted to obeying the law. There's some obedience that flows way beyond that. The obedience almost of, of loving God. And I think that's a great principle we can take forward. We want to be obedient to God. He knows we won't be entirely successful, but he has been so generous in helping us find a way out. So it's not about sacrificing our wealth and our money to him to get to God. We do that because we love him and we want to give, but we do it out of obedience to not just the law, but everything that comes after the law as well. And so still thinking about that sense of what can we learn about attitudes towards giving or towards money or towards work in the history books. I think there are a number of verses that talk about the way in which we work and actually the way in which we earn money. And so one of the verses that I want to discuss with you today, Simon, is 1 Chronicles 28 verse 20. David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And there are a number of things that jump out in that little verse to me. The first thing 
is the idea that God strengthens us. He strengthens us when he's asked us to do something. And so again, we're pointing back to what we discussed in the first episode of God's faithfulness, the fact God fulfills his promises and the fact that actually we are called to do the Lord's work. And there's also a sense of actually we do have to do it. David literally, father to son, says, do the work. And there's a sense of actually in that partnership that we are given responsibility in order to partner with God and to advance his kingdom. In this setting, it looks like building the temple. And perhaps in our setting, it looks like advancing the kingdom in our workplaces through our integrity, through the decisions we make, or through the way we handle money as well. And you have this sense, we pulled it out last episode, that God equips us to do the work. He doesn't send us out without the skills that we need. So we had that account of Bezalel and Aholiab, who God had gifted to make wonderful things, which became the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the precursor to the temple. And when it comes to Joshua being sent into the promised land, he was gifted by years of following Moses He was skilled. He was able to do that. Solomon has been given the talents. He's been trained up so that he can take over from David, his father, when it comes to building the temple. And we have this ongoing narrative throughout the history of the people of God, which seems to have some kind of focus on a place. First, it's the promised land. Then it's the tabernacle, which they would carry with them. Then it was the temple where they would go and almost be able to get into God's presence, but they almost never quite could. He was hidden away in the Holy of Holies where almost no one could ever go. And so a lot of their focus, whilst it was being obedient to his calling, doing the work, they never seemed to quite do it right. What I mean by that is, yes, they built the temple. Fantastic. We've got a temple. It's an awesome temple. And then what happened to it? Well, sometimes it gets knocked down by invading armies. Sometimes the Jews get exiled and taken away from Jerusalem and the temple falls into disrepair. And we have accounts repeated through the history of the Old Testament of the Israelites coming together and rebuilding the temple. But once again, we get this moment where, right, we've got enough money. Priests, have you started building the temple yet? Oh no, we haven't quite got round to it yet. They were procrastinating. So I think there is, you're right, Bex, there's a heart that says, not only do I want to do what God is asking me to do, I want to give of my money and my time and my expertise, but I'm not going to wait. If he's given me the skills, he's given me them for a purpose and he's given me them for a certain time. And unless he is saying otherwise, that time should be sooner, if not now, rather than later. He doesn't delight in us delaying. And I suppose when you were talking about God giving us the talents and the ability to work and to ultimately give him glory and to give back to him, I was thinking about Nehemiah when he's rebuilding the wall. And in Nehemiah 6, there's all these people trying to distract him. There's all these messages saying, hey, you should come down from the wall. And Nehemiah's response in 6 verse 3 is, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And I love the way that just captures what you were saying there about actually when God has given us the tools, wherever that is money in our hand, wherever that's skills which create money or advance his kingdom in some way, there is a sense that we should be committed to that. And that actually challenges and distractions will come our way, but we have a decision as to how we're going to respond to them. 
Absolutely. And in that story of Nehemiah, there are moments when the people are building the wall with one hand and holding a sword with the other hand in case they get attacked. They're not stopping because of the threats that are around them. And there are moments when different people come together. You've got a guy who I think was a perfumerer building the wall. Well, there wasn't much demand for perfume when there wasn't a wall to hide behind and and build a culture. But these were skilled people. These were people who had talents. I'm now drawn to the story of Ruth and this idea of a younger woman who didn't really have much going for her. She'd come back with her mother-in-law to what was for her a foreign land. And she had to somehow, without skills, provide for herself and her mother-in-law. And what does she do? She goes gleaning. And we had that in last episode. It was part of the law that you would leave behind. We talked about it in the Sabbath context, but in a wider context, you would leave behind some of the sheaths of wheat or grain to let the poor come and take. She goes working one day and she works hard. She works diligently. She collects lots. Here is a young woman who has gone to be part of the Israelite family without even really knowing who God was. We don't get that sense in the story. We know that her mother-in-law was an Israelite. But boy, does that girl work. And she works and she works and she works. And she finds favor in God's eyes and through God's eyes, in Boaz's eyes. And eventually, as we read the genealogy of Jesus in the future, becomes one of his ancestors because of her obedience and her love of those around her. It's a beautiful story. And I think within that, we also see an example in Boaz as to how to be a generous employer and how to look after people really well while also treating them with absolute dignity. And so I'm thinking specifically in Ruth chapter two, where Ruth's approached Boaz and she's asked if she can come and glean in his field. And not only does he grant her that, but he talks directly to his men and he says, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. And in that moment, he is ensuring her physical protection. He's ensuring that she receives the grain that she needs in order to sustain her and Naomi. And he's also willing to sacrifice some of his own profits in order to ensure that Ruth and Naomi, who are more vulnerable members of society, are looked after and cared for. And that follows right through to the end of the story, where clearly the implication is that Boaz quite fancies Ruth and he wants to take her as his wife, but he is going to do it right. There's a sense through the story of he is a shining example of how to do things right. Yes, how to look after your workers. Yes, how to look after the poor. But if we think about women in the culture, and again, not from a position of expertise, women were probably closer to possessions than they were people for much of that time of society, that time of history. And yet when the time came for him to marry Ruth, he said to her, look, I don't have a right to marry you. Let's do this properly. And they go and speak to this other guy who is her kinsman redeemer as well, who has the right to take her. He says, okay, yes, I'll marry her and I'll take the lamb that comes with her. So we have this moment where Boaz is speaking to the other guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer, saying, do you want to marry this girl? And with her comes the land, the land that was Elimelech's. He says, yes, I'll marry her. He goes, that's fine, you can do that. But then you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, 
the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And the guy goes, oh, in that case, no. I don't want to risk my own property to gain something else. But Boaz was willing to do that. In that moment, I don't know how many hundreds of years before Jesus, he was prepared to give up something of his own rights, his own protection, his own status to care for another family Close to him, yes, but not his direct family. And in that process, the integrity of that man flows right through scripture. And like we say, Ruth becomes one of Jesus' ancestors. It's a great example of how you can live life glorifying God, acting with integrity and people recognizing you for it. And so I suppose that's an example of somebody who was wealthy and who acted in a godly way, acted with integrity and bestowed dignity on people. And so we're going to flip to the other slightly unusual history book in the form of Esther, which is also told as a narrative, as a story. And here we almost see the reverse of that in the character of Haman. Throughout the whole book of Esther, Haman is giving a big chat. He loves indulging in the feast. He loves getting drunk at the parties. And actually in Esther 5.11, he's boasting about just how wealthy he is. He boasts about how influential he is. And ultimately what we see through the story of Esther is this crazy kind of role reversal where if you look at Esther, almost everything at the beginning of the book is flipped to be the opposite as God's justice and his rule and his reign come in and as his people are rescued from peril. And so Haman, who at the start is a man of influence and wealth, but wants to persecute and kill God's people, actually ends up being at the hands of that violence and ends up dying as a result. And so there's this interesting conversation in the Bible about actually when we're trusted with wealth, when we're trusted with possessions, when we're trusted with influence, what do we do with it? And are we honoring God or not? And you would look at Haman in that situation and think to yourself, here's a guy that clearly God has blessed. God has honored. God has put him in a strong position. He's almost like that Joseph character. He is second to the king. Surely God has blessed him. But here is also a character who has let the power and let the position replace any semblance of obedience and worship to God in his life. And so when he sees Mordecai, Esther's uncle and guardian, if I'm right, not bowing down to him, he flips. It's not as though he has a particular anger of all Jews, but there's one who he really, really, really dislikes because he's not showing him the honor that Haman thinks he deserves. And in that moment, he is prepared to persecute an entire nation because one man won't show him the respect and honor that he thinks he deserves. And then if you flip that round and look at the life of Esther, who was effectively taken into slavery, yes, in King Xerxes' court, but she was a prisoner in there. She couldn't walk away. She was well cared for and treated, but she had no life of her own. And when the moment came that Mordecai says to her, maybe you have been made for a moment such as this. Maybe you've been put in that position for a moment such as this. And she walks into the king's presence. She is prepared to give up her life to save the lives of others. So when we talk about generosity and we talk about wealth and money and possessions, for most of us, the most important thing we have is our lives. We would give up everything to protect 
our lives and the lives of our loved ones. But it does say, we'll get to this in a few episodes time, greater love hath no one than this, that they would lay down their lives for their brother and sister. And that's what Esther did and that's what Haman did not do. She sets as a wonderful example of sacrificial generosity, which turned out through God's provision in her favor. Wonderful. I am aware that we are quickly running out of time on this episode. Simon, are there any final comments on the history books and money according to them that you want to make before we wrap up this episode? I'm reminded as I read through the broad context just how much focus the Israelites had on property and land, on temples, on gold, on the trees of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. must have been great cedar trees they had in Lebanon. Because they go on and on and on about it, how important it is to get these things. And yet, when they got them, they didn't do a great job of looking after them. And certainly, as we look back on that historical period, through the lens of the New Testament, in the context of knowing the rescue plan that God had, we begin to see how much money can be a trap for people, how they misuse it, how it takes control of their lives. The Bible has so much to say about wealth. I think it's not because it thinks wealth is a brilliant topic we need to learn lots and lots about, but because wealth is a dangerous topic, we need to know how to handle it, how to manage it, and how to be prepared. And I'm hoping as we journey further through the Bible, we'll begin to see a shift in perspective, certainly into the New Testament. I'm looking forward to that. But we have some poetry coming up next. So hopefully you can get your best diction going for next week, Bex. Where are we going next week? So we are, as you said, going to be in the poetry books. So I'm thinking Psalms. I'm thinking Proverbs. I'm thinking Song of Songs. I'm thinking Job. I'm thinking Ecclesiastes. And that's going to be interesting because obviously that's written in a time and a context that we no longer live in. And so it might take a little bit of deciphering to understand what was actually going on in some of the language that was used. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. So hopefully you will all join us next week for Money According to the Old Testament Poets. If you want to get hold of us, I'm sure by now you know exactly how to do so. If not, go and listen to another episode. And that's all from me, Simon Glazier, and my wonderful co-host, Bex Elder. We will see you next time for some more Where Your Treasure Is. Goodbye. See you then. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you where you and your podcast want to go. Thank you.